I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The FT as London bids to become a centre for Islamic finance, are Sharia financial products useful for ordinary savers and investors? The real midlife crisis, why Britain's middle-aged are the worst prepared for retirement, and why self-build has struggled to gain traction despite government encouragement. I'm Jonathan Ely and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues Elaine Moore Hello. and Tanya Poli. Hello. Plus, Laith Cullough of Hargreaves Lansdowne joins us on the phone from Bristol. Hello. This week, David Cameron announced that the UK government would issue a sukuk, or a bond that complies with Islamic law. It would make the UK the first non-Muslim country to issue such an instrument. Islamic finance is big business. From a small village in Egypt 50 years ago, it has grown to a worldwide industry with over $1 trillion under management. However, previous attempts to nurture a domestic Islamic finance industry have met with mixed results. The Islamic Bank of Britain had to be bailed out by the Qataris in 2010, and HSBC closed its Amarna Islamic finance venture last year. So what exactly is Islamic finance? Who offers compatible products? And are they suitable for mainstream investors, Muslims or not? Elaine Moore has been investigating. Elaine, first of all, what is different about Islamic finance when compared with mainstream financial products? Well, there's two main differences. The first is that they cannot offer interest. So instead, the customer would receive a portion of the profits that are made from the investments that the money is used for. The second thing is a broader ethical consideration. And this is where perhaps non-Muslims might be interested in these products. The understanding is just that the money that is invested is not used for companies that are engaged with activities such as producing alcohol, pornography, things that are considered against Islam. Okay, and what products are already available to UK retail investors? Are we talking bank accounts, ISIS, uh, savings products? And also, are they are they any good? Well, it's quite a wide range and from surprisingly mainstream providers as well. Where this all started was HSBC launched into this market and this was supposed to be the tipping point when Islamic financial products went mainstream and became big business. That hasn't really happened. The idea was supposed to be that Muslims who 
held accounts or, or home loans with mainstream providers would, once this product was available, would switch over, and they haven't. The idea was also that maybe non-Muslims would be attracted by either the ethical considerations or perhaps just by the rates or by the idea of competitors. This is all following on from the financial crisis when people were feeling fairly badly towards the mainstream high street banks. Again, the financial services market is sticky. People don't like leaving their provider. We've talked about this on the show before. If we're talking about the products that are available, so uh, HSBC no longer operates in this market, but you can go to Lloyd's and you can get a Sharia compliant current account. There are also home loans that are available from the Islamic Bank of Britain. You can invest on behalf of your child or you can just go to Scottish Widows for Sharia compliant investments. So there is quite a wide range, not as wide as perhaps everyone's predicting a few years ago. Now, there have been some comments this week that since many Muslims don't actually use these products, you you said just there that that many people have not uh, seen fit to switch. Why should the rest of us bother? Do they have appeal beyond the Islamic community? Yeah, this has been a really good week for some debate, fairly strong debate, about the merit of Islamic financial products. There is some debate around the idea of who decides that these are Sharia compliant. There's a a board of scholars out there, but some people have thoughts about whether that board of scholars is the right board. There's no sort of FCA stamp that says this is Sharia compliant, this is an Islamic product. So it's still quite a new area. And it's still really niche and it hasn't taken off in the way that it was perhaps supposed to. And as you said, there are these very amusing reader comments on some of the articles in the paper this week saying, look, rich Muslim families don't bother with these accounts. They go for Swiss private banks like all other rich families. Why wouldn't they? The thing is, is that some of the products are quite good. And a lot of these providers, Islamic Bank of Britain, particularly because it's new-ish to the market, it's had to compete on rates to attract new customers. That means that it's up there with some of the best savings rates on offer. And also the ethical side of things is quite interesting if we're thinking in light of what's happened to co-op recently. We're still not sure what's going to happen with the future of co-op bank, but if these US hedge funds take control of the bank and the co-op group loses its kind of majority hold on the bank, then it's questionable whether its ethical stance can continue as it always has. And that's something that customers have really liked about the bank. These products offer an alternative to that if that's something you're interested in. Thank you very much, Elaine. There's lots more on the principles and practicalities of Islamic finance in this weekend's FT Money, which, don't forget, is available on Sunday as well as Saturday. It's on all tablet platforms on Kindle and at ft.com forward slash money. Still to come on the show, how self-build is struggling to gain traction despite its many attractions. But first, let's take a look at retirement planning. A new survey released this week found that when it comes to providing for our twilight years, the group of people with the biggest set of problems is not the one you might imagine. Young people may be leaving college with big debts and facing a struggle to get onto the housing ladder, but they do at least have time on their sides and they recognise generally that the state is not going to pay for their retirement. That's in stark contrast to those aged between 45 and 54. The survey, conducted by US fund management group BlackRock, found that one in two of this age group had not even started saving yet. They also found that they completely underestimated how much they would need to save in order to provide their desired level of retirement income. They hold most of their savings in low-yielding cash, and over half expect the state pension to be their main source of retirement income. 
At the same time, they were the most pessimistic of any age group about finances generally, and many believe they will have to either continue working or modify their expectations of retirement. And crucially, unlike the young, they don't have time on their side. I'm joined now by Laith Kalaf, who is Head of Corporate Research at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Laith, welcome back on to The Money Show. If these findings are correct, this is pretty scary stuff, isn't it? It is pretty scary stuff. We already know that half of people aren't saving into a pension at all across the population as a whole. Obviously, younger people have more time to do something about that. So the fact that people in the sort of 45 to 60 category are not saving is certainly worrying. One good thing on the horizon is the auto-enrolment programme, which is going to enrol everybody into a workplace pension or as close as everybody as we can get. Let's start with some numbers. The Joseph Rowntree Foundation says a pensioner couple needs about £21,000 a year to live a decent life. Now, allowing for the state pension, how much would you need to put aside to get to that sum? Well, the state pension is is set to give you around £7,500 each a year in retirement. So between a couple, that's £15,000 a year. So between them, they need to save a further £6,000. Now, to get £6,000 annual income, they actually, over the course of their lives, need to save up to £150,000 between them. So depending on how long they have to do that, it could be relatively easy or or quite difficult. If you've got a 25-year saving time then you actually together have to put £320 a month to reach that figure. If you're younger, it's a lot easier. So if you've got a 45-year time until your retirement, then you only have to save £130 a month between you. In this survey, the average respondent said they wanted about £28,000 a year in total, and that's for each person, not per couple. What lump sum would we need to attain that? Presumably it would be a lot higher. It is. So just over £500,000 would be required to provide you with a £28,000 annual income, including your state pension. So a pretty brutal amount of saving needs to be made to to reach that figure. If you've only got 25 years, you'd have to save £1,100 a month to get there. More feasible over 45 years if you start early, you'd have to save £430 a month, bearing in mind that that also includes any employer contributions that you may receive and also tax relief from the government. So if you're in your 40s listening to the show and thinking, I'm nowhere near that amount, what should you do? Are there any quick wins for hard-up investors? I think there are. I think there are three things that people should should look to do. The first is, if your employer does offer a pension scheme and offers to contribute to it, then join that if you're not already a member, because that's a very simple way to make your savings go further, because each pound that you save is added to by your employer and by the government in tax relief. If you're a higher rate taxpayer, then it actually is a very effective way to save using a pension because for each pound that you put into a pension, you get a a further 25p paid into the pension for you and then a further 25p back in tax relief. So consider making the most of that allowance. And also look at any existing pensions that you have. Make sure that they're working hard for you, that you've got decent funds in there and you're not paying charges that are too high. One way to make your money work harder is to cut costs to the bone. There was some news on that front from the government this week, wasn't there? That's right. So the government is looking at introducing a cap on the charges that can be levied on default funds in workplace pensions, which could be set at either 0.75% or 1%. So in terms of, of the charges that people pay, hopefully that will drive charges to a lower level. To be honest with you, charges in the pensions market for default funds are already pretty low at the moment. Most, most funds are in that range anyway. I would probably encourage people to also think about not just 
just costs in isolation, but also the quality of the fund that they're investing in. There are some fund managers who have provided outperformance over a long period. Neil Woodford, who has announced that he's moving on from Invesco Perpetual this week, is one example. And those managers do tend to cost a little bit more than your standard default fund. So it's a question of balancing the cost, but also the quality of the fund as well. Thanks very much. That was Leith Kalaf, Head of Corporate Research at Hargreaves Lansdowne. There's lots more on this in our cover feature this week, where we look at the survey results in much more detail and ponder why there is such a midlife crisis when it comes to money. On to our final item for today. There was more evidence this week that house prices are rising rapidly. The Nationwide House Price Index showed a year-on-year gain of 5.8% in October. One of the many reasons for this is that for years we have failed to build enough houses in the places where they're needed. Some people blame the convoluted planning system for that failure. Others say it's the fault of greedy house builders who sit on land for years in order to maximise their profits. The government thinks part of the answer is to get more of us to build our own homes. In some other European countries, particularly Scandinavia, self-build accounts for a much greater share of overall home construction. But in the UK, building your own house is regarded as something that really only eco-obsessed middle-class eccentrics would do. That impression is compounded by a lack of finance options, as very few lenders support self-build. Back in May, the government launched a finance industry group to look at ways to get more lenders involved. Tanya Poli reported on that story at the time and has been reviewing progress. Tanya, it looks very much like there hasn't really been that much progress since May. Have any new lenders joined the fray? What we've actually seen this week is a small mutual, Hinkley and Rugby Building Society, has actually launched its first self-build mortgage product range. So they're basically probably the newest lenders into the self-build market. If you wind the clock back the last sort of five months, back to obviously when the government launched this finance industry group, we haven't actually seen much more movement. We actually saw a couple of months later, Virgin Money, which was a fairly sort of decent sized player in the self-build market, actually withdraw from the sector. So there hasn't really been much improvement. Yes, we've seen a small mutual come in but we've also seen another lender go out and as it remains we've actually only still got one of the major high street banks that's Lloyd's Banking Group through its BM Solutions brand that's actually supporting the self-build finance market. Why have mainstream lenders been so reluctant to support self-build? I think there's a number of things. I mean, they claim that actually there's not much demand for it so that they don't really need to be in the market because they're not doing much volumes. The other side of the story is actually it's not a very easy product for them to actually offer. I mean, it it doesn't meet this kind of tip-bock approach that most of the big high street banks do with normal standard loans. It actually requires a few more IT processes. They obviously have to have an independent underwriter talk to self-builders to actually find out exactly what they're doing. So it involves a bit more kind of due diligence, which I think is probably one of the main reasons why lenders aren't that keen on the market. Also, in terms of actually sort of getting new lenders on board, the banks and building sites I've been speaking to this week, they were saying that actually it's quite a tough time to be kind of looking to enter new markets because they've got the Helps Buy Mortgage Guarantee Scheme, which was sort of launched this month and brought forward from January 2014. So they've had to deal with that as a new process and new systems. And they've also got the Mortgage Market Review, which is the new set of regulations to sort of prevent risky lending occurring again, like pre-credit crisis. That's actually due to start in April 2014. So they've got a lot of things that they're kind of thinking about at the moment. So it's kind of put self-build further down the agenda for most lenders. Okay, so less choice, less volume and more complex processes. That sounds to me like a recipe for 
higher costs. Are self-built mortgages more expensive than conventional ones? Yes, they definitely are. If you take a example of a two-year tracker for someone who has a 25% deposit, so we know that's obviously quite a chunky deposit, actually for a self-built product, you would probably pay a rate about 5.49%. And then if you look at the mainstream markets where you're just getting taken out of a standard mortgage, you'd actually be paying more around sort of 2% mark. So there's a big difference. And I think that really shows how lenders actually deem self-built a lot more risky for them. And finally, if you were thinking of building your own home, what advice would you give? I think the big one is to really do your research, make sure you know what you're getting into. It's not necessarily a cheaper way of getting onto the housing ladder. You need to make sure that you can actually find a plot. We know that plots are quite hard to find. That's partly um, one of the reasons why there's been a lack of supply of housing anyway. And also just kind of really make sure you have a contingency plan because frequently with self-builders, they sort of decide it's going to cost a certain amount of money. And actually, you know, things like all cases when you get builders involved often a sort of spiral out of control. So you just need to make sure you have the right amount of money that you need and that you have that surplus as well, just in case anything goes wrong. Thank you very much, Tanya. You can read more about self-build in this weekend's FT Money. And if you really want chapter and verse on the subject, you could read our big feature from earlier this year. That's on our website at ft.com forward slash money. Elsewhere in this week's issue, we look at why the venture capital trust market is booming and explain the pension charges cap proposal that Laith briefly discussed. US money manager Ken Fisher discusses why the new Fed chairman is not quite as many perceive her to be, and my column looks at the role inheritances might or might not play in fixing the nation's finances. That's it for this week, but in the meantime, don't forget that you can read money articles all week on our website, ft.com forward slash money, and you can also find blog posts, readers' comments, and a whole range of useful calculators and tools. But until next week, it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Tanya, Elaine, and our special guest, Laith Calaf. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.